Welcome, welcome. We're going to go ahead and start our message at this time. If you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to read verses 1 to 9. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. And then I'll pray and we'll get started. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. Our message this morning is turning tragedy into triumph. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and see the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday, Lord. We thank you for that Easter morn, Lord. We thank you for how you rose again, how you rose again, how you conquered sin and death and Satan, Lord, how we could have life and we can have that eternal life through that faith in you, Lord. We thank you so much what you've done for us. We thank you what you what you've done for all the world, Lord. We thank you that you lived that sinless, perfect life, Lord, how you, you shed your blood and you died on the cross to, to pay sin's penalty for us, Lord, and how you rose again. And we can, by faith, ask you to be our Savior, Lord, and, and trust you and believe, and, and we can possess that eternal life, Lord, and, and see you in heaven, Lord. Thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you so much for our choir presentation, Lord. Thank you for our church. Thank you for all the visitors that are here this morning, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. We cannot thank you enough. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. The title of our message this morning is Turning Tragedy into Triumph. I read this quote this week. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely the best attested to fact in ancient history. The historical fact of the resurrection and its theological meaning become the centerpiece of apostolic preaching. In the book of Acts, perhaps from the impetus provided by Peter and John, New Testament preachers claim the Savior is forever alive, a dramatic truth at the heart of the gospel to this very day. Our living Lord has conquered both sin and death. Uh, we can function in spite of trouble and heartache, knowing the ultimate victory is His and ours by faith in Him. Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered the grave. He rose from the dead on that Easter morn some 2,000 years ago. We serve a risen Savior. His tomb is empty. He is gone from that tomb. The tomb is empty. I love that last song. I love all the songs, but I love that last song. The last song gets me excited. So, gone. The stone is rolled back. Gone. The tomb is empty. What a Savior we serve. What a Savior we serve. We as Christians participate in both the cross and the empty tomb. God's Spirit baptizes all believers into Christ's death and His resurrection. 
Romans 6, 3, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? And then Romans 8, 9 to 11, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. We participate as believers in Christ's death and his resurrection. So let's look at verses 1 to 9 right now. Our first point will be that empty tomb or that empty sepulcher. What sights awaited these two running men and the one struggling woman? What sights awaited them? She saw the Lord. They found some linen clothes lying. I don't know. I hope you all find this as humorous as I do, but it might be just me, but I always smile and get a bit amused when I read in verse 4. If you're going to look at verse 4 with me again. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. I, I think that I chuckle sometimes when I read that. John made sure he put in the eternal word of God that he was faster than Peter. <laughs> I, I, I find that humorous. I'm glad you find that humorous too. Every time I read that. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. He just kind of threw them there. I wonder if even today, if Peter gives them a hard time, or if they, they joke about that in heaven together. You know, forever, eternity all, they, they'll know John's the faster runner than Peter. So I, I just, I'm glad you all thought that was funny too. Every time I read that, I think, I think of that. Now, it must have been apparent when they saw that empty tomb that no grave robbers had been there. It must have been apparent. It was an orderly scene evidenced by uh, how, how God delivered his son. It was an orderly scene. When John went in, he believed that it was that, that, that cloth was set aside, it was folded. It was, it was an orderly scene. It wasn't, it wasn't as if grave robbers had disturbed it. It must have been evident for that. And when John went in, he believed, it said, he perceived the reality of the resurrection for the first time. Look at verses 1 to 2. First day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. We know from Matthew's account that Mary Magdalene was not alone on this visit. Matthew 28, 1 says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And that other Mary, we would believe, is uh, referenced in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six. Say, they say that as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now, if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're going to look at Luke's account of this. Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. Luke 24, verses 1 to 8. And Luke says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. 
And that was actually Michael's very first memory verse. He was about two years old. He memorized, he is not here, but is risen. He's not here, but is risen. So that was the first thing he memorized in the Bible. So startled, Mary and the others ran to the disciples. Luke tells us their report was rejected. Their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not, Luke 24, 11. So they come and say, the tomb is empty. We, we saw these angels, and they're like, they dismissed their words as idle tales, and, and they believed them not. So that first report was not believed. So unbelieving were the disciples at this point regarding Jesus' promise to rise again. They did not believe that eyewitness account. But after that initial rejection, it seems Peter began to wonder a little bit. He started to consider it a little bit. Maybe he started getting some hope. Could it be true? Could the tomb really be empty? Could, could Jesus be alive? You know, I, I could see these thoughts going through Peter's mind. We see in Luke 24, 12, after I believe Peter considered consider this for a few moments, that's when they start running. Peter running to the tomb, Luke 24, 12, then arose Peter and ran into the sepulcher, then stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come pass. So we see, we mentioned earlier, Peter and John running. Uh, Luke says Peter is running. So let's consider those running disciples for a moment. Let's consider those running disciples. Back to John chapter 20. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. John chapter 20, verses 3 to 5. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Mary ran back to the disciples, and after that initial rejection, as they were saying, those are just idle tales. We don't believe you. After that initial rejection, Peter and John, I believe, start thinking about it like, we've got to see this for ourselves. We've got to see this. So Peter and John run to the tomb of Jesus. And this detail that says, so they ran in verse 4 is quite interesting. So we're going to look at that for a moment. So they ran. Now, in first century Palestinian culture, grown men did not run. Grown men did not run. It was considered beneath them. It was considered that the grown men did not run. They, they would not run. It was considered beneath them. Young children, maybe servants on occasion would run, but grown men did not run. Grown Jewish men did not run. So with that information to help us understand, I think we see a little more emphasis now in this context. Consider this. The disciples walked with Jesus for three and a half years until his crucifixion. Now with news of an empty tomb, those same disciples ran. They ran. They put decorum aside, and they ran to where they thought Jesus to be. They ran to where they thought Jesus was. They ran before they walked. Before they walked, now they ran. When Jesus was alive with them, they walked with him. Now that he's risen, they run. They run. How is our pace with the Lord? How is our pace with the Lord? How, how, how urgent is it to us to be near Him? How urgent is it for us to fellowship with Him? How urgent is it for us to do His will, to surrender to His will? Do we just kind of take our time to surrender to Him? Take our time. It's not that urgent if I read my Bible today. I can read it tomorrow. It's not that urgent. Uh, is it not that urgent for us to obey His Word? Or is it 
of extreme importance. Do we run? Do we run? Do we want to do his will so much that we run? Do we, is it, is we get up in the morning, we can't wait to get our Bibles open. Do we run to the Lord? Are we running for the Lord? Are we running to the Lord? Are we running that race that is set for us? 1 Corinthians 9, 26 to 27. I therefore so run, Paul wrote. I run. I therefore so run. Remember, first century Palestinian Jews, that was beneath them. So that, that gives us more emphasis again when Paul says, I run, not as uncertainly, so I fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul says, I therefore so run. It's urgent that I live the way I'm supposed to live for the Lord. It's urgent my, what, that I do his will, that I live his will out. It's urgent to me. It's very important to me. In Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Run. It's urgent that we live for the Lord. It's urgent that we do His will. It's urgent that we get His gospel out into the world around us. It's urgent. It's urgent. We don't just want to take our time. We want to run due to His will. Run to obey Him. Are we running our race for Christ? Are we giving our Christian life our all? Are we doing our best? Are we exercising self-discipline to run the race that is set before us. If you're a Christian, you have a race that is set before you. Are you running it or are you just slowly walking along? We need to have that urgency about us. Now I want you to notice hope dawns in darkness. Look at verses 6 to 7. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Hope begins to dawn in darkness. Whether motivated by shame or or just acting according to character, Peter plunged into that darkness. I want to think it's more just acting according to character. It's just Peter being Peter. He plunged into that darkness. He's one of the ones I want to meet first. Is Peter. So he plunges into the darkness. Notice the burial cloth was folded up by itself. This was obviously an intentional act on the part of someone. What happened to the Lord? Where is he? What does this mean? Is it true? Is he risen? All of these questions and more, I'm sure, just were swirling around in Peter's mind as he is running into that darkness. How clearly Peter must have remembered this day for the rest of his life. Crystal clear. Like there are certain moments in time where certain things happen, we can remember exactly every detail about those times and those places. So how clearly must Peter remember this event years later at the home of Cornelius? Peter speaking said this, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on the tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, 
who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness and through his name and whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 10, 39 to 43. Seeing and believing, look at verses 8 to 9. Then went also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher and he saw and believed for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Notice John did not try to make himself look very good. He just said, we didn't know the scripture yet. We didn't realize what was going on yet. So three of Jesus' followers saw the empty tomb, but John was not finished with his report. He wanted his readers to know that after Peter entered the tomb, he himself finally found that courage. He followed Peter into that empty tomb. Now John uses a word translated as saw in our text which means to perceive with understanding. Not just see, but perceive it with understanding. That is why our text reads, John saw and believed. Things were starting to click in John's spirit. Things were starting to come together in Peter's mind. Things were starting to click in John's mind and John's spirit. He still did not comprehend it all, but he was starting to get what took place that Sunday morning had to be of God and not of man. I'm not sure exactly yet what happened yet, He says that, uh, for as yet they knew not the sepulcher that he must rise again, or knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He said, we didn't know that yet, but we knew this had to be of God. This wasn't just man. God did something here. Yet John points out for us in that verse 9 that he did not understand it yet. He wants us to know he did not fully comprehend that resurrection. He did not fully comprehend that that resurrection had to take place and that it was a fulfillment of scripture. That full comprehension would come later. John wanted to make sure he did not, we, he did not, we did not think he knew it all at that point. John's saying, I'm still trying to figure this out. I knew God moved, but I still do not understand about the resurrection yet. So what, when we notice also it says, for as yet they knew not the scripture. What scripture might that have been that John was referring to? It could have been scripture on Isaiah chapter 53. It could have been that. Or it could possibly would have been Psalm 16.10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. But whatever scripture that was, one thing is clear. Once the disciples understood what happened on Resurrection Sunday, it changed everything. It changed everything. The message of the living Savior permeated their preaching. They had that urgency. They were running for the Lord instead of walking for the Lord. This day changed everything. The resurrection of Christ changed everything for the disciples. And I want to attest that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for all of us that believe in Him. It changes everything. Faith in His life, His shed blood, His death, and His resurrection is what we need, is what gives us hope, is what allows us to obtain that eternal possession of eternal salvation. His resurrection changes everything. So Jesus has been resurrected, or he's not there. But that resurrection, that resurrection came hope, came faith. The tomb was empty. That means their their precious Jesus, their loving Savior, the Messiah, was alive. He was alive. 
Death did not get the victory. Satan had been defeated. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. We know Satan is already defeated. He is a defeated foe, though it seems like he's walking about a lot lately as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's very active right now in our world. Very active. But we have to keep in mind, he's already defeated. He is a defeated foe. Satan is a defeated foe because our Lord Jesus did not stay in that tomb. He rose again the third day. Satan is a defeated foe. So now let's consider a living Lord. How beautiful to learn that through the crucifixion, that though the crucifixion may have killed some faith and hope for a while, it could not destroy love. Jesus told Mary not to hold on to the past. Now there would be a new relationship. She would be the first witness uh, among the disciples that Jesus was alive. Jesus is alive. We have to keep that in mind. He is alive. Look at verses 10 to 12. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. Mary would not leave. You could not get Mary to leave. She would not leave his, his tomb. Even though it was empty, she would not leave. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white shining, the one at the head and the other at the feet, for the body of Jesus had lain. Mary stayed at that tomb. She stayed. She wept, probably as she has never wept before in her life. She wept at the loss of her dear friend, her one she loved so much, that had done so much for her, that she had seen him do so much through his life for others. She wept and she wept and she wept. Then suddenly, as she is there at the tomb weeping, two angels appear. And a fascinating conversation took place. We know from Luke's record that Mary had been cured of demon possession. Uh, We also know that she supported the Lord financially. Oh, she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus. And now he had been killed and, and something had happened to his body. But empty tomb or not, her grief was unbearable, so deep that she could not take her eyes off his grave to perceive the living Lord. Mary did not recognize Jesus. Look at verses 13 to 14. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. She just thinks the body's been taken somewhere. She hasn't, it hasn't clicked in her mind yet what's going on. And when she had said thus, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Mary saw Jesus. She noticed a person standing there, but she had no idea who it was at this time. So how could she not recognize Jesus? I was thinking about this this week. How could she not recognize Jesus? I I want us to consider some possible explanations. She had experienced a deep trauma, perhaps the deepest trauma of her life. Her eyes were filled with tears probably for several days, probably swollen, slit eyes, watery, filled with those salty tears. Her eyes were swollen up. She probably didn't have clear vision. That was part of it. It was not fully dawn yet. It was still a little dark. She was very confused. She just had a conversation with some angels. So she's a little confused. She can't see well. Perhaps most importantly, she had not considered the possibility of resurrection. She had not considered that. So the idea she could be talking to a living, 
Christ never occurred to her. She was looking for a dead body. She did not expect a living Lord. She was looking for a dead body. She did not expect a living Lord. It's kind of like when we see someone out of place. Like we're on vacation, hundreds of miles away. We're walking into the store, and there's our neighbor. Out of place, it would take you a moment like, oh, that's, that's you. It would take you a moment to, to recognize she, that he was out of place. This was not what she was expecting. I want you to notice his sheep know his voice. John 10.4 says, And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. His sheep know his voice. Jesus spoke her name, and that turned tragedy into triumph. Jesus spoke her name, and that turned tragedy into triumph. If Jesus spoke to you right now, that was possible. You would not have to say, who is that? My sheep know my voice. We would know it's him. We would have to see him. If he spoke, he said, Keith, and it was Jesus, I would know it was Jesus. His sheep know his voice. Now look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Mary. Tragedy turned into triumph when he said, Mary. Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. You know, I'm sure he said her name so gently and so lovingly. Mary. That's all it took. Her sweet Jesus spoke her name. He was alive. That tomb was empty. Tragedy turned into triumph. The first appearance of Jesus, this is very important, was to a formerly demon-possessed woman. His first appearance was to a formerly demon-possessed woman. That shows us the grace and the openness of the gospel. Jesus did not show himself to Peter. He did not show himself to John or any other disciples. His first appearance was to Mary, the formerly demon-possessed woman. All are welcome at the cross. All are invited to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. All are welcome. All are welcome. What grace. What love, what acceptance of whosoever will come to him by faith, repent of their sins and accept him as their Savior. What a Savior we have. We are so undeserving of that love. So undeserving. Thinking of this this week, when Jesus resurrected Jesus, first spoke her name, Mary. Think what it's going to be like when we see him and he first speaks our name. Think of that. How sweet that's going to be. We pass on to heaven and see his beautiful face. And he just says our name. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that. That just, that overwhelms me to think about that. Look at verses 17 to 18. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, 
and that he had spoken these things unto her. Mary could not touch him because he said he had not yet ascended to the Father. The people who love Jesus on earth, beginning with Mary, must learn to live without that physical support of his presence. They must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And that continues to this very day. We cannot touch Jesus. We have to live this life without his physical presence till we go home to heaven. We have to live this life by faith, not by touch, not by sight, but by faith. We must walk this life by faith. You know what? When you walk this life by faith, the Lord will amaze you. The Lord will amaze you. You follow his word, you obey him by faith, and he will amaze you. He will amaze you. You'll feel his presence and he'll show himself through that step of faith in your life. The Lord will amaze you. Next, let's look at that lasting peace. The troubled disciples needed peace. Troubled believers on earth right now need peace. We need peace. And this is what Jesus brought to that first group with his first appearance. He had promised to relieve the disciples' grief by replacing it with joy. John 16, 20, A little while, and you shall not see me again. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Christian, for a little while in this life, we will not see him. But in a little while, we will. Those words are for us. A little while, you shall not see me. But in a little while, you'll see me. In a little while in this life, we're not going to see our Lord. But in a little while, we will. We'll get to see that face, that loving face of our Lord and Savior. We'll get to gaze into those grace-filled eyes. We'll get to hug His neck. We'll get to feel Him give us the greatest hug we have ever had in our life. A little while, and you shall see Him. A little while, till we get to see that face. Hug on that neck and hear Him speak our name. Just a little while. Just a little while. I want, to, I want us to notice our unstoppable Jesus. Look at verses 19 to 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had, said, had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Our Lord is unstoppable. Locked doors, walls are nothing for him. He is unstoppable. Nothing can stop him. And that song we sang last week, I'm going to quote part of it. I love that song. I love that song. The King of Kings, though those words are incredible. In the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath, till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. I love these two lines. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. Gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name and his freedom I am free for the love of Jesus Christ. Who has resurrected me. The gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. The devil's working pretty hard right now. The gospel it will not kneel. The gospel will not faint. 
will not kneel, will not faint. No matter what the devil throws, God's truth will prevail. His word is eternal. The devil can't do anything to stop his gospel, his word. I'm so thankful for that. Remember, he's defeated. The devil's defeated. The victory was won. Now the scene in our passage moves from pre-dawn hours to the evening of the same day. The disciples were locked in and riddled with fear and spite of what Peter and John had seen, what Mary had reported. Then miraculously, instantly, the Lord appeared before them with a warm shalom or peace be unto you. Before they could respond, he shows them the nail print in his hands, the spear scar in his side. Why such a display? These fearful disciples, these fearful believers had the grasp that this was the same Jesus that had lived, had died, and rose again. It's the same Jesus. It's not his spirit. It's the same Jesus. His body arose. He was resurrected. His body was resurrected. It's the same Jesus. It's not a spirit. It's the same Jesus. The disciples, in the disciples' mind, perhaps those locked doors protected them to some extent from the Jewish authorities who they thought might want to harm them. But in John's view, the locked doors served as that symbolic reminder that nothing can stop or hinder the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop him. We serve the unstoppable Savior. Now I want you to notice receiving a Holy Ghost in verses 21 to 23. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. In these verses we see what was a, it was a temporary or a giving of the Holy Spirit at this point to disciples. But we know the greater giving to the church age was at Pentecost. So in that sense, they received a pre-church age filling of the Spirit in anticipation of the day of Pentecost so they could fully understand the Lord's teachings. Now, sins remitted and retained. The duty of the disciples was to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. The actual forgiving will be done by the Lord who paid for those sins. And the claims of the gospel are clear. Forgiveness only on the basis of the shed blood and death of Jesus on the cross. The verbs are remitted and are retained are in the present tense. The meaning of this is that the scripture, excuse me, the spirit filled church can pronounce with authority that the sins of such and such or so and so have been forgiven or have been retained in connection with salvation by faith. Connection with salvation. Like if someone gets saved, I, I'm there, I show them how they get saved. The Lord saves them, they get saved. I can tell them, you know, your sins are forgiven now. But it's not me that did the forgiving. I'm just telling them what the Bible says. Your sins are forgiven. In that sense, this is what that's talking about. But God is the forgiver of those sins. Not me, not the church, not anyone connected with the church. God, but that's what that's talking about here. In in connection with the gospel, connection with salvation, I could tell somebody, you know what? Your sins are now forgiven. They're paid on the cross. You accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your sin debt's been paid. That's what we're talking about here. Now let's look at blessed are those that believe by faith. John wanted people to understand the truth about Jesus to believe He is the Son of God, and thereby to experience truth, life, and salvation. Faith itself is not an end, but a means to an end. Look at verses 24 to 25. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger on the print of the nails, and thrust my hand to his side, I will not believe. 
Thomas could be called the original show-me man before Missouri, the show-me state existed. In the Greek language, tense is very important. The word translated there is said in verse 25, appears in the imperfect tense. This tells us the disciples kept telling him over and over again. But Thomas was one of those that seemed to take that model to heart, seen as believing. Seen as believing. Thomas used strong language here. He, he gave a strong, seemingly exasperated response to them. He, he seemed frustrated by their repeated insistence that, that they had seen the Lord. So evidence is presented to this doubter. Look at verses 26 to 27. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my, my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. In spite of what Thomas had previously said, he at least joined their Sunday evening service the next week. He wasn't totally dismissing it all, but he joined their Sunday evening service the next week. Again, in spite of locked doors, the unstoppable Jesus appeared, greeted them as he did the week earlier, but rather than showing his hands and side to the entire group, I'm sure he walks over to Thomas and starts offering a show. Hey, you want you said that? Here I am. Here I am. But this reminds me of a truth that we need to keep in mind. Sincere Christianity has always welcomed sincere research. We don't hide things. We don't, we don't pretend we have secret uh, information. Sincere Christianity always welcomes sincere research. Notice Jesus did not scold Thomas or condemn his hesitation. He provided the evidence. Only then did he say to him, be not faithless, but believing. So we go from doubting Thomas to a believing disciple. Look at verses 28 to 29. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas moved quickly, I would say rather quickly, from a skeptical, rough-talking pronouncements to a believing disciple or to a believer. He said, my Lord and my God, and he was actually the first person in the New Testament to say it that way, my Lord and my God. Thomas saw and believed, and that was fine. But happy and, and blessed are the many millions since then who have not seen but have believed by faith. We need to believe by faith. What finally got through to Thomas was the presence of Christ, identified by the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. It was the Christ of the cross that reached Thomas, and it is the same today. The Christ of the cross reaches us all day. For we are saved not we are saved by what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are saved by what Jesus did for us on the cross, saved by his shed blood and death, and by the fact that he was not only put in the tomb, that tomb is now empty today. He is gone from that tomb. That tomb is now empty. For the unstoppable Jesus rose from the dead. Satan could not stop him. Satan could not defeat him. Our unstoppable Lord in turn defeated Satan and the grave. First Corinthians 15, 3-4 says, For I delivered unto you first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That explains exactly what happened in the Gospels. And Jesus Christ lived, he died for us, he rose again. We have to believe the Gospel by faith through the grace of God, and we shall be saved. 
G. Campbell Morgan calls the resurrection faith's anchor. And he goes on to say, The living risen Christ is the center of the church's creed, the creator of her character, and the inspiration of her conduct. His resurrection is the clearest note in her battle song and is the sweetest, strongest music amid all of her sorrows. It speaks of personal salvation. It promises the life that has no ending. It declares to all bereaved souls that them also that are fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him, and therefore the light of his resurrection falls in radiant beauty among the graves where rests the dust of the holy dead. If our loved ones were saved and they've passed away, we'll see them again. I can't wait to see my parents again. It's been since 1989 since I saw my father. I can't wait to see him again. So let's wrap up our message this morning. Look at verses 30 to 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. So why did John write this gospel account? What was his purpose in writing this account? What was his purpose in writing the gospel that he wrote? Verse 31 tells us the answer to these questions. Verse 31 of John chapter 20 has been called John's mission statement. His reason for ministering, his reason for preaching, his, his sole motivation was that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Simply put, John wants you to be saved. John wants you to be saved. So if believing on Jesus Christ for eternal life is that important, how do we get it? How do we possess eternal life? How do we get saved? How do we do that? First, we have to realize that God loves us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we have to believe that God loves us next. We have to understand what sin is. 1 John 3, For whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is anything that goes against God's law or God's commandments. So we have to understand what sin is. We have to also understand all people are sinners. I'm a sinner. Everyone here is a sinner. We're all sinners. Even though we have some cute sinners around here, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, God. The Bible tells us sin must be paid for, and the wages we earn as a result of our sin is death, and those wages will either have to be paid eternally by us in the torments of hell, or we can accept a payment made in full on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8, But God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And who is Christ? He is our Savior. Hebrews 4, 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but with all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 again, 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So how do we get saved? We have to understand all that. And just simply ask by faith for Christ to save you. Simply just ask by faith. Romans 10.13 For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. And just simply ask by faith for Christ to save you. Ephesians 2.8-9 For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. After we are saved, then what happens? Revelation 21, 27, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we become a new creature. John 1, 12, we become the sons of God. We are adopted into God's family. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you get saved, you possess eternal life, and you truly do turn tragedy into triumph. If you have not accepted that free gift of salvation, why don't we do that today? Get that settled today and turn the tragedy of a hell-bound life into the triumph of a heaven-bound eternity. Let's go ahead and pray.